Hello, Ars Technical listeners. This is the latest serialization of an episode of the After On podcast. We're splitting this one into three segments starting today. And I'll be talking to Tim O'Reilly, who's been one of the most original and innovative thinkers in the tech world for quite an impressive string of decades. Tim is by far the best-known publisher in an industry in which books matter immensely. Software developers, IT people, and other technical folks can easily consume dozens to hundreds of books during their careers, keeping up with the ever-changing programming languages and skill sets that are core to their jobs. A huge share of those books are published by O'Reilly Media, and multiple billionaires have publicly stated that their startups got going on a couple of O'Reilly Media books. The company has also organized innumerable conferences, has a popular online training platform, and more. But significant as it is to be tech's preeminent publisher, that characterization doesn't even begin to convey the influence Tim O'Reilly has on the industry. Starting in the earliest days of the World Wide Web, he has repeatedly convened conclaves of tech's most thoughtful, prominent, and or powerful people to face important industry transitions, to plot courses through them, and, quite often, to name them. Tim's prescience was on full display in 1992 when he published a thorough guide to the World Wide Web as part of a broader survey of the internet. This was so early, there were only 200 websites in the world at that point. The New York Public Library put that guide on its very short list of books of the century for its influence and foresight. Not long after that, Tim's troublemaker-in-chief, Dale Doherty, convened the now-legendary World Wide Web Wizards Workshop, where leading web pioneers like Tim Berners-Lee and Mark Andreessen actually met for the first time. In 1998, Tim summoned a similarly impressive cadre of people from the world of open-source software, a vital and vibrant sector of technology that the internet largely runs on. For those not familiar, open-source refers to software created by large egalitarian groups of unpaid volunteers. Important as it already was when Tim gathered the tribe, open source didn't even have a name yet. The group settled on the name open source, obviously, as well as core elements of the open source philosophy, which helped guide the community to this day. Tim struck again in 2004 with articles in a conference dedicated to the concept of Web 2.0, a term which the industry quickly latched onto and which will forevermore define the era when interoperable sites and services built around user-generated content first emerged. Things like social networks, blogs, wikis, microblogs like Twitter, sharing sites like YouTube, and of course, podcasting. Not long after that, hardware and tinkering started taking center stage for the first time in decades in tech. And as always, Tim and his company were there a couple years before things started happening, having already launched Make Magazine, which itself launched the Maker Fair, and of course gave us the word Maker itself. The aptly named Maker Movement quickly gave rise to such marvels as consumer-grade drones, 3D printers, the amazing Arduino and Raspberry Pi platforms, and so much more. Tim always gives credit to the people who actually invented the terms he's done so much to popularize. But important as names are, the real seminal energy has come from the gatherings and settings that Tim curates, both during these periodic industry sea changes and at various annual powwows that Tim playfully calls Foo Camps. Foo stands for Friends of O'Reilly. Invitations to these are coveted, cherished, and eagerly accepted by industry leaders throughout the world. Tim's long-awaited retrospective book on this amazing career, which includes deep ruminations on where we go from here, was released on the day that I originally posted this podcast to my main feed, which is to say October 10th, 2017. The book is called WTF, 
And no, it doesn't stand for that. But what's the future? In our interview, Tim and I appropriately discussed the future, as well as his book, and also his own remarkable history. On that topic, it's worth noting that Tim did not spend his college years studying the ancient forerunners of modern programming languages like Java and Python, but rather the truly ancient languages of Latin and Greek. As someone who prepared for his own career in tech by studying Arabic, I think that's pretty awesome. A quick note, I'd like to apologize in advance for the sound quality of this episode, which is not up to my standards. Ironically, the indirect reason for the poor sound quality is that I'm trying to maintain a lunatic fringe standard when it comes to conducting things in person. Few podcasters attempt this because they are smarter than me. This in-person stuff involves lots of travel, wear and tear, and expense because I'm based in New York City and so many of my interviewees are in California. The other problem with venturing out into the field is you occasionally do stupid things like leaving a small but critical component of your recording apparatus in the lift car that takes you to Tim O'Reilly's home. Yes, I did get it back because Lyft is very good at reuniting lost items with the knuckleheads who lose them, but Tim and I ended up recording the interview on our iPhones because like most normal human beings, Tim does not have a home recording studio. Now, luckily, I have an amazing editor. Thank you, Jason. And we were able to create a perfectly intelligible interview. You will understand every word we say. It'll just sound weird when we're both talking at the same time. And it'll occasionally seem like the interview is being conducted by two different guys who sound like me. High Fidelity Rob and Lo-Fi Rob. For what it's worth, making the interview intelligible required that I work the second all-nighter of my entire life. The first and only other one being in college. So between that, the hustling to California and the forgetting of my recording gear, which would not have happened if I'd been sitting at my desk in Manhattan, I will be reconsidering my Skype policy in the near future. Anyway, without further ado or excuses, it's my honor to present Tim O'Reilly. Thank you so much for inviting me into your lovely home, Tim. I appreciate that a great deal. And I often like to start by talking about people's backgrounds and what brought them to their current uh, professional station. In your case, if it's okay, I'd be interested to start at the very beginning. You were born outside of this country, weren't you? That's right. I, I'm an immigrant, although uh, an immigrant uh, as a small, small child. Yeah. But it does highlight the fact that America has always been the land of opportunity. Yeah. Uh, my dad was trained as a neurologist, and he realized that some he wanted to do research, and mm-hmm. he realized at some point that the only way he would ever get to do the work that he wanted to do in the UK was if somebody died. He, yeah. he was from Ireland, of course, but he had, he had been trained in, in the UK. So he, he came to the US. And you were three months old at that point? I was three months old. Well, I appreciate the significance of that. Um, by a very hair-splitting technical definition, uh, I was an orphan for a few months at roughly the same age, um, and I was adopted very quickly. Um, so I agree that things that happen before our memories kick in on a very obvious level are kind of irrelevant, but they still inform your perspective. So I do get that. And you spent your childhood mainly in the Bay Area, but also in Northern Virginia, correct? Childhood was San Francisco and Sebastopol Mm -hmm. up in Sonoma County. And then I moved to Virginia when I was about 15. Yeah. And my dad got a job. He was the head of neurology department at George Washington University. And you got to be a lab rat form, right? As I think you put it. Absolutely. We, uh, 
when I was about 14, my best friend and I and my friend's sisters uh, were all control subjects in a, an early radiocopper study wow. uh, of uh, a neurological disease called Wilson's disease, which has to do with abnormal retention of copper in the body. And they were just in the early days of nuclear medicine. And the way they would do it is we got injected with radioactive copper. Wow. And then they put us in this counter to see where it was going in our body, how long it took to, to be excreted, and so on. And of course, they did the same thing with the Wilson's disease subjects, and it, because it is a disease of abnormal retention of copper in, yeah, yeah. in, in, the, in the liver and the brain. And so I did not turn into Spider-Man, but... <laughs> Was there a period when magnets would stick to you? Nothing like that, but I did give my body to science, and, and if... I ever come down with liver cancer, we'll know why. We'll know exactly why. Now, one of the things in our prior conversation that intrigued me is you fell under the spell of this very interesting person. It was it via Explorer Scouts or something? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting story. My uh, my older brother was 16, and he actually went. We were just sort of breaking up, so to speak, with the Catholic Church. You and, and your brother or your whole my, family? My, no, my brothers and I. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, my mom and, and dad were still with him. Oh, yeah. Very, 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 very Catholic. There had been some very interesting dinner conversations. Uh, well, or, or not. We or basically, not. Uh, it was just, uh, uh, but we were exploring all kinds of, of alternatives. And, and my brother, Sean, went to a, uh, a sort of a meditation class at this place called the California Institute of Asian Studies, mm -hmm. which studied the work of Sri Aurobindo. And uh, he met this guy, George Simon, who was also at the class, uh, who came up to him afterwards and said, I like the way you meditate. Would you like to join a nest? The nest? Uh, as in uh, uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Oh, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, which was this idea, uh, this idea that was from Stranger in a Strange Land, uh, that if you uh, effectively could learn Martian, that uh, it gave you these superpowers. Oh, incredible superpowers. I wanted them desperately when I read the book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so this was probably 1967, 68. Not long after the book came. Was yeah. it early 60s? That yeah, it, came it was out? early 60s. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was in the air. And George had this idea that actually we could develop a language for consciousness. Mm -hmm. And the, he, he basically had been in various kinds of... of uh, he, well, first of all, he'd studied with uh, a lot of the work of uh, general semantics. Mm -hmm. Alfred Korsibsky's idea that, that language is, is really a map of the world. And Korsibsky really developed this experiential training for separating your the stories that you tell yourself about the world from just raw perception. Mm -hmm. He actually had a, uh, a device he called the structural differential, uh, where you a hardware uh, device. Yeah, it was, device. well, it was just, it was really something you could make for yourself. And I made one as a kid, you know. The, the idea was that reality is infinite, but our experience of it is limited. Mm -hmm. And then we limited even further by describing that experience to ourselves. With limiting words. With words, yeah. So, yeah. so basically, and Korsibsky would make the point that uh, the words that we use often shape our perception. Mm. And we and he so he was trying to get people out of the words and back into the experience and then beyond the experience just to look at the thing itself. Now is this sort of like that famous thing that Eskimos allegedly have all these words for snow, types of snow that we can't even see because we just don't have the words for them? I don't know if that's accurate, but is it that kind of notion? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it is true. Uh, mm. I've had that experience myself. When mm. I moved to Sebastopol, which was a place where we had a summer home when I was a kid, and 
bought six acres and got horses. Mm. And when I first was there, I'd look at a field and it was just this grass, right? Mm. Yeah. And yeah, I could see there were different kinds, but I didn't really, I couldn't really see them. Yeah. And then, you know, having horses, you learn, oh, that's oats, that's vetch, uh, that's ryegrass, that's, uh, you know, um, orchard grass. And you, you'd, all of a sudden, you'd look at the meadow and you'd see six or seven or eight different kinds of grass. That's wild. Because you did have a, have a name for that's them wild. and you were able to pay attention. It's like learning a foreign language and being in a, a cafe and suddenly understanding what's being said as opposed to just hearing a bunch of phonemes. That's right. And, and that was a, a key part of what George worked on. He felt that you could, in fact, train the consciousness with new language that would let you see things that you could not see before. And in some cases, that language had to be developed afresh? That's right. I actually wrote my thesis at Harvard, where I, I studied classics, mm -hmm. about uh, this idea that so much of what we think of as knowledge is rehearsed knowledge. So we receive this knowledge about, here's what Plato said about you know, justice. We read, you know, the Socratic dialogue and we, but when Socrates and his students were first engaging with those questions, there weren't answers. Right. There wasn't this received knowledge. And it's interesting because if you think about how much of what we teach, it's basically received knowledge as opposed to this first person experience going back and wrestling with those questions. Mm -hmm. One of George's so-called languages for consciousness had yeah. to do with the evolution of human consciousness. He felt that it proceeded in these big stages. Yeah. And uh, one of them, you know, was the development of, of a kind of individuation and kind of the mental self that we that we think of as the modern mind. Yeah. And he felt this had, had really come into focus in ancient Greece but that we were actually heading into a new phase, which was a kind of global consciousness. Hmm. And it's interesting because, of course, I went to Harvard to study the classics, partly because I wanted to dig into that. And I was really focused on this idea that, you know, the modern mind, in some sense, was formed at this period. Whether that's true or not, we'll never know because we yeah. can't go back. And so anyway, George was, of course, here we are in the in the 70s, and he was studying Sri Aurobindo, the, uh, you know, this uh, uh, Indian mystic and putting that in was Deschardin, you know, all these people with the idea of, of this sort of spiritual global consciousness. Anyway, uh, George died in an accident uh, in 1973. I continued uh, to teach his work for some number of years. At Esalon, right? Yes, that's right. He was, uh, again, he started, you know, when I knew him, he was working with teenagers. And then he got discovered by, I forget quite how it happened, but he got discovered by somebody who was connected to Esalon. And he ended up going down there and teaching workshops for the staff. And then you ended up teaching and then, at Esalon. And then I, a, I ended up teaching at Esalon. As that's a right. teen. That's right. That's, that's amazing. Years old. Yeah. That's amazing. And, uh, Anyway, so, so the irony, again, at some point I decided I did not want to make a living becoming this sort of pseudo-spiritual teacher. So I ended up pivoting and getting into computers. But the irony is here I was 20-some years later talking about Web 2.0, right. about global consciousness, right. that we had built this technology-mediated global brain. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, and so I realized, oh, he was right. You know, we just we didn't understand the mechanism by which it would happen. Yeah. And, and, and that's really been a central idea throughout my career, that we are, in fact, building 
something that is bigger than we are. And there is this collective consciousness that is happening. And it's interesting because, of course, culture is collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's really interesting how much AI brings this discussion into focus. It's actually, I've re recently been fascinated by making the connection to this concept, uh, goes back to Lynn Margulis uh, in 1967, where she articulated this idea. Of, actually, it was before that she was, I think it was first proposed in around 1908, but she sort of picked it up and kind of demonstrated it. Uh, and the idea of endosymbiosis is that the multicellular organisms, eukaryotic cells, yeah. are actually uh, compound beings, that, that mitochondria and chloroplasts yeah. yeah. are actually bacteria that have taken up residence in, in the cell. So, and eventually this was proven by looking at the DNA, right. you know, and, uh, you know, the, the, there's one set of DNA in the, in the uh, nucleus of the cell, but the chloroplasts and, and mitochondria and other uh, organelles are actually have different DNA. I knew about the mitochondria. I did not know that other organelles also had independent DNA. That's interesting. You think about that, and then you think about all that we're learning about the microbiome. Right. So I started really thinking about that in the context of this, uh, you know, collective intelligence question. And you think about uh, something like Google, yeah. and you go, well, it's this uh, mix of machine DNA, so to speak, mm -hmm. you know, this digital code that we've created. And all this human code, I mean, literally, there are humans inside Google. Right. There are humans inside Amazon. And that was one of the key concepts that led me down the path to Web 2.0, or what I call Web 2.0. Uh, you know, I hadn't even thought about this collective consciousness stuff since, since the early 70s. But here yeah. I am in, in uh, the late 90s, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about what happened with Microsoft taking over control of the computer industry from IBM. Yeah. And it was that hardware became a commodity with the PC. Sure, yeah. And uh, Microsoft realized there was this new source of lock-in in software. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, guess what? You know, open source software and the open protocols of the internet are going to break Microsoft's lock. You know, we're going to commodify the old style of software and the lock-in of software, but something else is going to become valuable. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what led me down the path to the idea that it was going to be big data and collective intelligence. And so I started, you know, in, in this period, you know, I started talking about what eventually we now call cloud computing, you know, and, yeah. you know, the, the insights were one that I gave this talk around 2003 called the open source paradigm shift. And I always would start out by asking people in the audience, how many of them use Linux? Yeah. And, you know, I get anywhere. To, if I was a Linux audience, it would be 90% of the people. If it was a Microsoft audience, it might be 10%. Right. Uh, but then I say, how many of you use Google? And almost every hand in the room would go up. Ergo, you use Linux. That's right. Yeah. And of course, this comes back to the idea of maps and yeah. language as a map. And and everybody had this, you know, this sort of cognitive blindness that came from, you know, the PC world. Yeah. Where the what you used was the computer on your desk. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, the idea that software was somewhere else was invisible to people. And yeah. so I would say, no, you're all using Linux, yeah. you know, because that's what Google is built on. That's what Amazon is built on. Once I thought about that, I was like, OK, well, what's different about that software? Mm -hmm. You know, and here was, you know, Microsoft would put out a new release of Windows every few years, new release of Microsoft Word every few years. It was an artifact. A physical thing. Yeah, it was yeah. a physical thing. CD-ROMs. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it didn't change once you got it. Yeah. 
you know, whereas these these web applications were dynamic. They were always changing. Yeah. You know, they would stop working, in fact, if there weren't people inside of them. Yeah. And I didn't think of this analogy to uh, endosymbiosis at the time, but, you know, I literally, ha I asked this uh, programmer who'd written a book for us called Mastering Regular Expressions, Jeff Friedel. He said, what do you do in your job with, with Perl at Yahoo, Perl Programming Language? And he said, well, I'm, I write regular expressions to match up news stories with ticker symbols for finance.yahoo.com. And I went, oh, and this was at the time I was really just thinking about, well, what's different about Perl than other types of languages. But, oh, this guy is, is basically part of a workflow and a process inside yeah. this software. He's a, he's a software component. Right, right. And so this idea that the people were inside the application, of course, has continued to show up. You know, you think about how every new AI application is being trained by Mechanical Turks, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you think about how... Uh, Google gets smarter every time somebody links to something, how every time somebody clicks, clicks on an ad, every time somebody clicks on a link, uh, how long they spend on the page, do they come right back? Uh, that means it wasn't the right, the, you know, the, the page they were looking for. Right. It's all this implicit data that Google gets from that. And it's so a you, symbiosis between that's right. the people so and the machine. So there's this symbiotic intelligence. Yeah. And uh, and there's people inside it, the programmers who write the algorithms and manage the, the workflows. And then there's people outside who are communicating with it. So I, I eventually came up with this notion that we are the microbiome of these uh, collective organisms. Now, I know you haven't yet had a chance to read my book, but when I got to this part of your book, I was really happy. Um, now, this, this isn't much of a spoiler because I think if anybody who's heard my book knows there's a super AI in it. At some point, she comes to the conclusion that humanity is her microbiome. And she informs a medical doctor of this fact or this conclusion. And that doctor is not really pleased to be informed that she is part of a computer's gut bacteria. It's kind of a comedic scene, but premised on the notion that we could be seen as the microbiome of a giant technical infrastructure like Google or Facebook. I think that's totally right. And even if it's not technically correct, of course, it, it's, it, a, it's, it, an, it's, it's an analogy. It's a powerful you know, one. It is a very useful metaphor for helping us to see the world. Yeah. And that goes back to this idea of what do you see with a different map? And when you see that map, and this really becomes a central theme through my book, yep. the core of the book, is really the question of uh, if this is a compound organism, mm -hmm. you know, uh, of people and, you know, the nature of its intelligence is going to be very different. We are part of it. Right. Now, just to finish bringing folks up to speed on your background, you got out of Harvard in the late 70s, and within just a couple of years, you started what became O'Reilly & Associates, and then later O'Reilly Media, correct? That is correct. And so originally, it was a tech writing consulting firm. I had a friend who was a programmer who uh, got asked to write a manual. I thought of myself as a writer. I'd mm -hmm. written a book about Frank Herbert, science fiction writer. So I said I'd help him out, and we went into partnership together writing manuals. So we, you know, this theory that, well, you have a programmer and a writer, they can do a better job. And so it actually was actually a key to what we did in the early days at O'Reilly. So manuals for software. That manuals for software. Yeah. yeah. And then mm -hmm. uh, starting around 84, I broke up with my original partner and I, the, the company that's now known was originally O'Reilly and Associates later became O'Reilly Media was, was actually incorporated in 83 after five or so years of doing this partnership. 
but I very quickly wanted to make products. And mm. I, I and I realized that uh, many of my customers were asking for the same manual. Mm. So I started retaining the rights, you know, and say, well, you want a Fortran manual, you can have us develop one up for six months, or we can do it in six weeks by simply adapting, repurposing, yeah. adapting this one we already have. And that led us to Unix. Mm. And then we had a big downturn in our business around 85. And uh, we started turning some of these Unix, uh, these Unix manuals into books just mm. because we thought, hey, let's see if we can, uh, you know, we can sell them directly to consumers. And eventually that really took off and we stopped doing the consulting. So we became the, you know, this technology publishing company. But anyway, one thing led to another. We became very involved uh, in uh, the early adoption of the World Wide Web. Hey, Ars Technica listeners, Tim and I will continue our conversation tomorrow. If you can't wait to hear the rest of it, or if you'd like to browse my other 30-ish episodes, you can head over to my site at after-on.com or simply type the words after on into your favorite podcast player. This interview originally ran on October 10th of last year. And also in my feed, you'll find lots of episodes concerning life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, quantum computing, drones, and a whole lot more. If you like what I do, I hope you'll consider subscribing to my podcast and listening to some of the episodes in the archive, all of which were designed to have long shelf lives and none of which have gone stale yet. And of course, you can join me here tomorrow on ours when we'll continue with part two of this interview.